Hi, I'm Michelle Adams, and welcome back to the Beyond Words podcast. This is the place where we sit down with the writers of your favourite books and talk to them about the inspiration behind the stories that they write. In each episode of this podcast, you'll get the chance to meet the author behind one of my favourite books and be introduced to a novel that I have personally loved and which I think and hope you'll love too. Beyond Words is where the story continues once the final page has been turned. Welcome back to the Beyond Words podcast. Today I am very grateful for the opportunity to share with you a novel that I read earlier on this year and which I found to be one of the most genuinely moving stories I've read in a very long time. The novelist joining us today has been making up stories since she was a child and after studying English literature at Cambridge University and after a short stint as an agent's assistant in London, she now works full-time as a writer. Although she's currently working on her second novel, we are here to talk today about her debut, The Silent Treatment. So it's a pleasure for me to welcome Abby Greaves to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. It's, um, yeah, it's brilliant to have the opportunity to kind of talk about it now when hopefully people are kind of looking for reads um, coming into the kind of autumn reading season. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's, I think one thing, one kind of silver lining to this year is that when um, readers have got in touch and have found their way to the book, however that may have been, whether it's an e-copy or an audio copy or something they've picked up in a bookshop post lockdown, um, people have been really kind of generous with um, their thoughts and how it kind of, how various themes have impacted them. So um, yeah, that's definitely been a silver lining to publishing this year. That's really good. Did you manage to publish in lockdown? Was it in lockdown? Yes. Did it come out before? Um, so it came out on the 2nd of April. So it was about... Oh, lovely. Yeah, right, the kind of peak in the UK. And I think, yes. um, there was obviously kind of great sadness to that. And there were, yeah. you know, events cancelled and no launch I could kind of live with because that was just kind of, you know, they're nice things to do. Um, and it was really yeah. sweet readers. But I think... Um, as a first-time author, the real thing that I kind of dreamed of was going to a shop to kind of see your book, yeah. kind of look along the row and say, oh gosh, that's me and I've always wanted to be there. And not to have kind of had yeah. that was obviously a bit of a wrench, but um, as things have got back up, you know, people are still looking for books. And yes, is it harder for them to find uh, new voices? Yes. Um, but it still rewards the effort um and so yes it's been definitely been an interesting first publication um journey but lots of kind of highlights still along the way well I'm glad about that because having to release your first debut novel on the 2nd of April in 2020 is just not how you envisage it um but this is a fabulous novel that I'm sure anyone that's been able to find it during this period will have connected with it in some way and so let's start things off by just asking you to share a little bit about what the silent treatment is about yes so the silent treatment tells the story of a couple called frank and maggie and they've been married for 40 years but for the last six months they haven't spoken so not a single word nothing and all that time they've lived in the same house and they've slept in the same bed and they've eaten all the same meals at the same table, but just no words. 
And when the novel opens, um, Maggie takes ill and she's rushed to hospital. And it's at that point that Frank is forced to unravel the secrets that have silenced him. Um, so it is, on the one hand, a kind of unique love story, but it's got a kind of strong sense of mystery running through it. Um, and I hope a real kind of sense of redemption um, and uplift at the end too. I definitely think it has. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's actually my, although it's kind of obviously impossible to talk about in kind of like a context like this, um, the kind of epilogue, the final sort of, I don't know, five, seven pages of the book were um, absolutely my favourite to write. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was. I, and it wasn't, it was always the ending, but I definitely reworked the epilogue two or three times, you know, complete kind of redrafts because um, it's so important, the ending of a book. And I think as a reader, you know that, and I am a huge, gracious yes. reader. Um, and as a writer, you obviously know that too, but I think um, obviously with everything else going on with the book, the balancing act of plot and character and theme and language, maybe that kind of slips away. But it's so important, I think, that readers see that characters get, if not what they want, then they get what they need. Um, emotionally in particular so um yes i hope it will reward readers who get to the epilogue <laughs> well a, a lot of writers i've heard say that they find for them the most important section that they work on over and over and over again is the beginning of the book but i wonder now you saying this because obviously it is a very it is a story where you are looking for that redemption. So did you find that this final section was what you worked on the most? Absolutely. Um, and I've heard that as well. A lot of authors say the beginning and the beginning is very hard. That's not to deny, but actually, strangely, the beginning of this book, I remember where I was sat when I wrote it, the first draft, and actually it changed very little. There were a few sentences put in and a few sentences taken out, but it was nothing like the kind of scale um, of what changed with the end of the book so wow yeah for me that was the case and I think when I was writing this book um, I always knew that in this particular relationship the silent treatment was going to be more than a bit of a sort of off joke um, at a dinner party oh so and so gave me the silent treatment you know they're sulking it was going to be something yeah um, that plugged at something a lot deeper and um, that there was going to be a kind of dark mystery inside ostensibly what's quite a kind of uplifting love story so getting that back the ending for me just encapsulated the importance of getting that balance between like happy beautiful kind of moments and the kind of darker undercurrent which to be honest I believe is kind of in every relationship particularly in every long-term relationship yes. it is that balancing act so yeah getting that right in the ending was a struggle but I um I'm glad I put in the hours now um, <laughs> Well, stepping back a little bit from the ending, let's go back to the other side of things. When you first started writing that, that early chapter, I've heard you talk about what inspired you to write this, this novel, this story that you heard from Japan. But could you just tell us a little bit about that and how it inspired you to start? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it, perhaps unusually, I do, I do have quite a kind of strong sense of when the initial idea kind of sparked me, which isn't always the case. Um, but with this, I first had the idea back in 2017 when I was living in London, working in Piccadilly Circus and commuting in from kind of the south. And I, every day I read Metro, which is our commuter newspaper. 
Um, and I suppose, uh, for better or worse, you know, there's a kind of disposable quality to those newspapers. But I remember reading a small sidebar story. Um, it can't have been more than 150, 200 words. And it was about a couple in Japan who had been married for something like 20 years, 20 plus years. Um, but for the last 18 of those, the husband hadn't spoken to his wife. And as such, their younger son, who I think was 18 at the time, had never seen his parents speak. And um, it just completely stuck in my head. And I remember, you know, a couple of other news pieces sprung up online. And I saw a kind of video with subtitles where the son had got a television crew to cry on stage a reunion. And anyway, all, it, you know, I sort of looked at it and then I suppose, you know, life carried on. But that image of a couple who could live under the same roof and to some extent had co-parented in this story, I just couldn't, you know, how could they have lived under the same roof? And I just, the ideas were kind of sparking. And I think when that started, I thought, okay, this could really have legs for something, albeit in a very, very different context with this book is. Um, that nugget of a loving relationship, but where the communication has just completely drifted out. Um, I thought, okay, that could be a novel. And... It, sounding out that idea, it could be really easy to imagine that uh, a couple like that, either be the husband or the wife, could have something inherently unlikable about one of them. But actually, Frank and Maggie are both incredibly easy to like. Um, so how did you come up with your characters? That's a, that's a really good question. I'm so glad you said that because that was something I was really worried about. I think because the silent treatment has so many negative consequences connotations understandably it can be yes. very cruel it can be associated with kind of narcissism and acted kind of like a weapon in so many relationships um and without giving too much away the kind of root of the silence is sort of none of those things um and it's a kind of shared trauma as it were that's kind of unpicked so when you know that there's a reason like that, something that isn't born from cruelty, that kind of makes it slightly easier. You know, there's no kind of hard and fast villain, um, no villain really at all in it. So um, that was one aspect. And yes, when I started, I knew that I had to have, if you're writing any story with a kind of a love element in it, you need re two really strong parties. And Frank came to me first. Um, and I knew that he would be a man who had always struggled with words. Um, the sort of person who shows his feelings through deeds, not words. Um, and I'm fortunate that I'm surrounded by quite a few people like that in my life, although I name no names. Um, <laughs> but, um, I knew he would be someone like that and I knew he'd be a bit bumbling and um, it came to me that he was probably more likely to have a sort of sciencey brain than an artsy brain, although that is a kind of crude distinction a sense that perhaps he wasn't used to kind of pulling out his feelings in long sentences and then once I had the shape of him then it's then it's kind of fun because you're almost playing imaginary matchmaking because it's like yes. who would be who would he gel with who would be his dream woman because you need yes. that sense of them like knocking off each other otherwise you're writing a scene that's like surely these people would never go on a second date like what is it Yes, you need the friction. Exactly, exactly, that's it. Um, and I knew that for him, he needed someone who was a bit fire to his kind of neutral wire. Um, and that's Maggie, who's very sort of sharp and fun and she's the life and soul. And he describes her at one point as kind of a kaleidoscope of colour. Um, 
and she has her own issues um, from her upbringing and through her kind of sense of self um, but when they're together they really kind of knit there's a sense of an element about one party completing the other um, and they really are the two leads there are other characters in the book um, who were brought in to kind of um, I suppose fleshed the two out as well but um, I really lived with both those characters for a long time before I put pen to paper which I think is the beauty of writing your first novel you kind of you know there's no rush you know no one might yes. ever want to read this so for the next six months I'm just going to live with these characters in my head in the shower on the commute doing the washing up you know on the family holiday and just live with them so I've got to say I think they definitely benefited from marinating and one of the nicest things I think people can have said to me and can say to any author is when they say your characters felt completely real to me. They really did. Two completely real people who you might have met as your neighbour or as a colleague. Yeah, well, that's kind of exactly that. And I think that's one of my favourite things when I read a book is when you kind of put the book down at the end and, you know, maybe for the next few days you're thinking, yeah, that woman in the cafe, the way she's saying that is just like how so and so yes. it, or her mannerisms because the author's painted such a rounded picture and actually this being my first novel what I learned is that you know when it's done well that feels easy as anything you know it feels like as a reader you're yes. oh that's so but like to craft it's just it's meticulous um so yeah but I, I and how do you do that how do you craft that's a really good question. And I, you know, this being my first novel, I read a lot online about how some people almost do sort of personality questionnaires for their characters. Um, and that didn't work so much for me. Um, I think it was the case of just kind of living with them for long enough and perhaps just asking a few important questions, you know, right. if there was a very long queue at the tills in Tesco, Frank would probably approach it and say, oh, well, there we go, you know, nothing's happening. He wouldn't even huff, he would just sort of stand there. He's your typical, very easy, easy to get along person, would never dream of calling the manager in any situation, even if the restaurant was on fire, he'd probably just sit there and not cause a fuss. Um, whereas Maggie's much more kind of elbows out, like, let's duck and dive to the next queue, let's see if we can get in there. Like, yes. So I'd maybe put them in a few very, very specific situations or, you know, like if they had a box of celebrations, which one would they eat? Like almost unbearably niche, never going to be in the book. But once you feel confident answering those questions, then I'm like, OK, I need to start to write because I can't spend forever. Um, so, yeah, that's probably how I go about it. So you essentially took them with you for six months of your life and put them in all the situations that you experienced and saw how they behaved. Exactly. Um, and I mean, I would love I would love to be able to say that. Well, I did do it to an extent with my second book, but I felt a slight sense of I couldn't have forever. You know, when there's a deadline, yes. suddenly if I have six months just to like live with my characters, that's only that's really taken half my entire time yeah um, it's very different writing a book out of contract than then beginning to write your first book under contract there's much more pressure exactly. to just get it done exactly and oh just the kind of sense that you know okay if I spend that long with characters and I can't have that long on plot and I definitely can't have that long to write it or you know yes I need the time for that so um it was definitely luxurious to get to know Frank and Maggie 
Um, but I'm really glad um, that you said that it seems that there's kind of a payoff for that for readers and hopefully, you know, there'll be characters that will be memorable um, when the kind of the last page is turned. And which one do you think that you connect with more? Do you prefer Maggie or do you prefer Frank? Do you have a favourite? That's such a good question. You know, I found Frank a lot easier to write. And I wonder if that was because he came to me first and because, as I said, I knew people who had kind of a lot of his qualities. Um, but then Maggie really rewarded kind of how much her sections got reworked. And actually, um, again, without giving too much away, um, her voice comes out a lot stronger in the second half of the book. And that was the half that I did more work on. And I have much more in common with Maggie, I think she is quite a conflicted woman um, and in what I believe is kind of the best possible way you know she doesn't she's very hard on herself but she can acknowledge the difficulties that she has um, as a woman as a wife as a mother as a working nurse um, she can get very much up in her head um, and Yes, it was really important to me that she didn't feel just a kind of generic, ditzy, quirky, kind of romantic lead, um, much as I love those um, as a reader. It was important to me that she felt like she had knots um, in herself to unpick. And one of the big kind of themes is that something about Frank as a partner that's so important to her is that she feels like he is the one person who can unravel that knotty mess of her mind. So when communication breaks down between them, that's when things really kind of explode. Um, so yes, I suppose that's a long answer to say Frank was easier to write, but Maggie, I probably do actually relate with a lot more. Well, moving on to Maggie, because that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask later on, but we've led into it so easily here, is that Maggie really, she, she comes to us in this novel full of life, and ideas and passions for her future and what she's going to achieve. And Frank himself then, as you've said, describes her as a kaleidoscope of colour. And in her marriage, it's almost like she gives a lot of that to Frank. He's a very accomplished man. He's doing his um, PhD at the time that she meets him and he's a very academic scholar. He's very accomplished. And she really gives herself over to his success and loses part of herself do you think that's the same for a lot of women of that generation do you think it's changing now that's such an interesting question um I think it probably was um I think obviously the generational shift is huge I think you know in terms of the freedoms women have now even the fact that we can have discourses where we're saying women aren't childless they can be child free um you know before it was just didn't have mm. children um what's wrong with you yeah and i think obviously we still have yeah. a huge amount of work to do still um towards attitudes but we have come a long way and so i would say it probably was fair that the kind of maggie you meet at the beginning part in parts of the relationship she does kind of lose herself and i think I hope it's kind of at least it feels to me an accurate representation of what happens in so many relationships that if you're to bring your life together with someone there needs to be a bit of sense of kind of give and take ebb and flow and you know sometimes that balance will seem off it will seem like maybe one person yeah. has sacrificed more and that's definitely um something Maggie feels but 
I think as well, what's interesting about writing a book where your characters go through a kind of long time frame, which in the silent treatment they do. So Frank and Maggie meet in their mid twenties. And then when the silence occurs, um, the present day action, they're in their kind of mid sixties. So that's a 40 year span. And I think people really do change. And I think the big question for any long-term relationship is like, are you changing together? You know, are you changing mm. in close enough to parallel paths or is one person like spiraling out? Um, yes. And uh, it's true that Maggie and Frank do generally move in parallel paths. That's not to say there are times when they're not kind of at a, at a fork, um, but they always manage to find their way back. Um, and I suppose you could probably say that the silence is the biggest fork they face. Um, yes. And that's 40 years into their marriage. So... There are definitely a lot of ideas that I've always been interested in, in terms of relationships, which I can see kind of played out in the book. Um, and yeah. writing is such a brilliant way to kind of find out what you think about so many questions that are always at the back of Absolutely. Mind. And that's definitely the case with the kind of relationship aspect of the silent treatments. Their relationship has obviously been through, you say, 40 years of life together. And in that time, they have dealt with some very difficult things, one being infertility um, and a second, someone that they care very deeply about, addiction. Um, so how did you approach these topics as a writer? Because they're very difficult, very complicated. Yes, Um I knew when I was writing this book and I was crafting their relationship, there are no kind of long-term relationships I can think of that haven't been touched in some way by the sort of subjects that could, could break a couple. And I think because when we meet them, they're in this situation that many people can't understand. They're thinking, why is Maggie still there six months after her husband has turned silent? It was very important to me that we saw through the course of the novel that they had weathered some serious storms you know more than just yeah. one argument more than just you know a week thinking they should separate some real storms um because I think as a reader that makes you think oh it gives you something to root for and it shows you that they can work through it and you know it gives it a sense of authenticity I hope and in terms of the individual kind of issues that we've touched on I'll kind of start with the infidelity um infidelity infertility <laughs> um those two slipped rather together off tongue no in terms of the infertility um i wanted to be very careful to kind of draw that um in as sensitive a manner as possible because obviously it affects so many couples so many men and women um and not everyone kind of feels comfortable talking about it understandably so um and for maggie i think the culture of silence surrounding infertility is something she really struggles with and obviously that plays kind of informatically as well um, I think, you yes. know, it was just a case of really making sure that I was in her head. I think I'm the sort of person in life and as a writer who always errs on the side of sensitivity. If there's a kind of a word that I'm not sure about, it's not there. Um, and, that, yes. and that's just who I am, really. And it was really just to get in her head and to think, you know, this, a child is something that Maggie wants above everything at a particular stage in her life towards her late thirties. And what would it feel like if the one thing you want the most, you just are, you know, is completely out of your hands. You just are not able um, to provide. So I really just, there was no particular story that I tapped into. Um, 
I've kind of done some reading around the subject and I'd always, you know, it's a subject that's always really interested me and felt very um, kind of personally affecting. So I already had a kind of wealth of kind of sentiments in my mind and it was just about really getting inside Maggie's head and thinking, you know, she is the sort of woman who has always grabbed life by both hands and now she's not able to do that. Now it's out of her control. And that's a sentiment everyone can relate to whether or not you've had those issues in the kind of realm of infertility so um yeah it was really about tapping into her head and I suppose it was a similar case with the later um stories relating to addiction and there I did a, a bit more reading I think one thing I found very affecting was a book called Beautiful Boy by Nick Sheff and it was recently made into a film with Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet it's phenomenal if right. no one's seen it. Um, not one if you're feeling a little fragile, it's very hard hitting. And that was based on a father and a son um, who was the son struggling with addiction. And they both wrote parallel memoirs about the experience. Um, one, obviously the addicts, one the kind of parent of the addict. Um, and what that adds up to is the most extraordinary study of how we, how we cope with addiction, how we treat it, and how the people around us can support that or struggle to, really, as the case is. Yes. Um, yeah. And I found that, I read that book and watched that film in the kind of second big structural edit that I did with my editors, and that I did nothing really changed. It just helped me fine-tune even just phrases, um, yeah and maybe sentences and kind of to pull out a sentiment that was already there you know the helplessness of someone dealing with addiction the fact you would give anything to take it away and again there's this sense of the spiral of uncontrol um the shame as well there's kind of a lot of parallels strangely between um those two themes that you pulled out so i suppose a mixture of quite specific research and a kind of real commitment to just getting in the heads of those characters so that above all else, um, it just felt realistic um, and treated with kind of the sensitivity that both issues deserve. I think you really succeeded. And I say that from a very personal place because I lost my brother to addiction. And so as a family, we actually went through that kind of story. And when I was reading it, it did feel incredibly real that that sense of desperation of trying to chase somebody that doesn't want to be found. So congratulations on that. I, th- I mean, I think it was beautifully done. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I will say that I've had, I've been very fortunate to have a few very kind of touching emails from readers who've generously kind of shared their own story as you have. And that actually means the world, you know, I had no idea that my, obviously my greatest hope as a writer and I think not just in this book but in any book I think the greatest thing you can do in a book is to show someone a situation and say like this is how it feels to me and to have the reader yes. say that is exactly how it feels and like you were saying earlier on as well is that you you write as a writer to sort of understand how you feel about things and being able to connect with a reader and have the reader read your book and then say oh yes that is how I feel about things. And now I understand part of my own life is such a huge reward. It is. It is probably the hugest kind of reward that there is. And it's very hard. I think, you know, as a writer, you always want to take on 
I think writers will always be drawn to kind of the darkest corners of human experience um, while they still want to, to kind of present them in a way in a storytelling format that entertaining and it's such a hard balance to hit and that was something that I really kind of learned through the writing and redrafting of silent of the silent treatment um, and yeah it's a real gift if people then kind of share their experiences with you and feel that it's um, been well done it gives you a lot of sleepless nights as well <laughs> you know <laughs> comes out. um but it's kind of a, a risk all writers take isn't it so <laughs> one of the things i wanted to ask you actually is about these difficult subjects and i think i already know the answer of what you're going to say but perhaps i'll rephrase the question as to why um fiction often deals with some very difficult subjects such as infertility addiction um, it might deal with abuse or assault or discrimination. And occasionally I've heard people say that fiction is not the place to deal with that, which is not my own personal view. Um, but how do you feel about these kinds of things in fiction? Do you think that it is a safe place to explore and that's why people respond to books like this? Or do you think it's something else at work? It's such a case-by-case -case basis, isn't it? Because I think the most important thing when you approach any of these issues, um, which have huge personal weight for so many people and may, you know, depending on the writer, depending on the subject matter, may lie outside of your realm of experience. The most important thing, of course, is that it is sensitively handled, that you're trying to move beyond stereotypes, that you're really trying to, like, get inside that character's head and to, like, see the, see the pain through their eyes. Um, and every book is different. There are books you read, um, which I adore, um, which kind of manage to avoid the kind of heavier topics of life. Maybe they're kind of comedies or, um, and they avoid that. that. But I do think that we need books that deal with these subjects because I think um, fiction and indeed kind of any form of art is kind of where you know, we explore that experience and it does help people. You know, there have been books I've read that have dealt with subjects very close to my heart, be that kind of mental health, be that grief, be that loss. And when it is exquisitely well handled, it is a sort of comfort like nothing else. You know, a comfort that just can't be found to be seen in that way. Obviously, if it's done poorly, yes. it can offend to the same degree. Um, Yes. And, you know, that is a risk. But as a reader, I've always been drawn towards books that touch on subjects that are meaningful to me and also touch on subjects that could well be meaningful to me in the future. No, no one of us knows what's down the line for us. Um, yes. So there's, I believe, I honestly believe there's a time and a place for every book. You know, just because a book doesn't deal with more difficult issues doesn't mean it doesn't have huge merit. Um, that yes. said, it's very important that we do have a breadth of books dealing with these issues um, and dealing with them in all manners of different ways, in all genres as well, you know, that you've got love stories that deal with domestic abuse just as much as you have crime thrillers about domestic abuse, or yes. historical fiction about domestic abuse or literary fiction where abuse is the kind of planet around which the other elements orbit. So, um yeah, I, I suppose that was probably the answer you might have been expecting. But um, yeah, I do believe that, you know, it's so important that fiction does have the chance to engage with those issues. Um, 
And from a perspective of the silent treatment, you chose to set your book in Oxford, which, as I believe, that's where you grew up. Yeah, it's it's funny. People say that with your first novel, you mine most of your personal experience, uh, which worries me a little bit. <laughs> um, only you're like, what have I got left? What's like left on the ground? <laughs> but yeah, it is set in Oxford where I grew up. And I think... I love writing about Oxford because it's an amazing city. I feel like I should be on the tourist board. Um, And it has, (laughs) people have so many conceptions of what it looks, of what it's like, you know, the Dreaming Spas University. But, and while Frank and the silent treatment is a part of the university, um, Maggie is very much a part of the town. She's a district nurse. She works in a GP surgery. Um, So you see both sides of the city. And I think, I suppose this being my first novel, I was so invested in character and in uh, plot and pace and tension and setting is so important too. But I think having a setting that I knew, like in my bones, you know, I wasn't having to Google, what does it look like down this? You know, I knew it because it was just, it was a slight, just one element was that slight bit easier. Um, but also it made perfect sense for the characters and the lives that they live exactly um and there's kind of I think in the book there's a lot about um silence and how certain generations and certain classes and certain types of people um have different attitudes towards it so Maggie as a nurse is speaking all day Um, it's her job she kind of she's the sort of person who runs towards the noise she runs to the center of the party whereas Frank comes from this world this academic world that's very austere and very quiet um, and comes from a sort of lower middle class background he says at the beginning where you know it was a bit sort of let's not talk about our issues let's just kind of get on every aspect of him conditions him to do the opposite to kind of stand in the corner so um the fact that both their lives in oxford kind of were able to show them in that way i think really helped um i do love oxford whether or not i'll return to it for another book though is kind of it's hard to say right you want every every book yeah. different and then suddenly you're like well, yeah. only, you can only live in so many places um <laughs> <laughs> so, I've become very good friends with the Google Maps. Have you? I've heard that. And I, you know, sometimes I'm very good with it, but I don't know if you do the thing where you put the little running man, you know, you go there and... Yes, absolutely. (laughs) As you're walking down the street and suddenly I'm like, you know, I'm lost in Birmingham. I'm thinking, you know, (laughs) you you can really set for hours. Um, In my first book, I used that little man for, uh, for the Brixton tube station. And as a result of that, I put um, a florist selling flowers outside the Brixton tube station, which I never would have done before. And my editor then said to me, I walk past that florist. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it brings really nice, real details. It does. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's such a fine balance, I think, in fiction. How much description is enough description? Because, you know, as a reader in in a book you know there's no visual like in a film um yeah. you need yes. to paint enough so that the reader feels like they've been dropped onto the pavement like you say in front of the flower stall outside the tube station but without yes. getting so bogged down in it because uh, definitely as a reader like i struggle with books where there's a lot of description i want just enough description yes. that i'm like there 
but not enough. Yes. I've forgotten what happened in the last chapter or like I'm starting to feel like yeah. where's the plot going. Um, yes. So yeah, but Google Maps, I definitely learn more with my second book. Um, is also becoming my friend. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, kudos. It's a helpful tool. It is, and kudos to the authors who went before us, pre-Google and everything else, who just had to um, to win it. Long research trips, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> so. so what about before you were writing? Are you writing full-time now? Yes, so currently I am. I have, a, I'm very happy to kind of share what I was doing before. Um, so actually when I had my idea for the silent treatment, I was working as an assistant in a literary agency. So right. I was sort of in the world of books, although at quite the junior level. Um, and a lot of people have kind of asked me, did that help? And like, the honest answer, like annoyingly to most questions in life is kind of yes and no, because on the one hand, you do see a bit more of the world of books. And, you know, you see that an, an author's first draft doesn't look like the finished product. <laughs> um, yes. By the same token, I was working there for about three years. And as I say, at quite a junior level, so everything from the kind of invoicing and phone answering to um contracts i suppose were kind of more um more complex but so i didn't have quite enough time to get like a real footing and at the end of the day you've got to write the book and no kind of background really is going to help yes. with that um so then when just before my well about a year before the silent treatment was published um my partner had the opportunity to move up to Scotland for a year and I just thought right. I'm never going to have this opportunity again um, and I was quite yes. tired of London and I'd been saving for a while to kind of try and leave to not try and leave London I suppose leave London to see something different um, so that was yes. an opportunity and then actually we we moved back down from Scotland to the south of England just before lockdown at which point I was going to kind of see how how's it gone for me um just writing and to take from there but then obviously the pandemic stepped in so it's been I suppose a kind of unusual journey in that respect but from what I read and I love reading about other writers lives like how they how they spend their days how they come up with ideas whenever I read them you know no no author has the same journey as another author and totally, totally and I think that's the most important thing I take away like it's easy to look at um an author who just hit it right straight out the cannon and then every single yeah success but you know you a you would struggle to find someone like that and also you know the next author who's who's done very well for themselves has changed genre twice and the next one you know yeah was working as a civil servant and did five books that didn't take off but then they did and you know everyone's got a different story and I think that's probably one of the most um valuable things that I've taken from you know reading and listening to podcasts like this about other writers is that you know the journey is a a very it's definitely not linear yeah exactly and it's um it's a strange zigzag but you know as I suppose that's how it is and um, at the moment I'm just trying to enjoy exactly it exactly enjoy it and to kind of accept it with whatever serenity um is possible <laughs> particularly this <laughs> during lockdown <laughs> yes um 
Well, before before we wrap this interview up, this conversation, it's not really an interview, conversation up, what I'd love to ask you to do is share part of the book with us. Yeah. If that's okay. I would absolutely love to. And um, I've done a few readings and I toy between reading the prologue and reading the section which I've decided on today. Um, Okay. Which was actually a suggestion from my editor. I was fortunate that this was chosen for the Radio 2 Book Club. And as part of that, you do a reading. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified of how to do this reading. I was <laughs> so much that I couldn't find the part of my book that I loved. <laughs> and it's got to be, you know, from some bit. So um, I'm reading an extract from one of the early chapters. And it covers the moment when Frank and Maggie meet for the first time. Um, in a pub in Oxford just before Christmas, a pub which I love, by the way, um, and which I always go to just before Christmas myself, but obviously probably won't be this year. Um, so I thought I would read that. Um, okay. Because it gives a great sense of kind of Frank's voice and hopefully the flavour of the book. So here we go. And and huge congratulations on the book club. Oh, you too. thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so here we go. I'll try and do a better reading this time round. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I saw you, all I could make out were your eyes and the very tip of your nose, ruby red like a beacon in the cold. You had a thick woolly scarf pulled up over your lips, your hair bunched up under it so that only a few wisps could escape. When you arrived, it was as it ever would be, like a cyclone descending, all flailing limbs and air kisses, a flurry of hugs and exclamations and the sort of warmth everyone in the vicinity could feel, even at three degrees below. I hadn't seen you around much before, that much I knew for sure. I'd been in Oxford for five years by that point and I was knee deep into my D-film. The lab was hardly swarming with women and it wasn't as if I was dripping in them in my spare time either. No, I definitely would have remembered if I'd seen a girl like you before. With its cheap lager and large outdoor seating area, the Rosen Crown was a stomping ground for the developmental biology department, if such a thing could be claimed by a group of scientists who didn't see much daylight, let alone the social evening hours. It was far enough from the dreaming spas to dodge the cannon-wielding tourists, but close enough to stumble back to halls if anyone did manage to land it lucky at the end of the night. I know it's a cliche to say I noticed you straight away, but it would still be true even if your elbow hadn't half caught Piotr's glass as you bowed past and into the arms of your equally excitable friends. I was looking forward to that evening, a Christmas party of sorts, only the budget didn't stretch far enough for any sort of planning to have been required. Instead, the two supervisors had come and put a fistful of notes in a glass for us to buy rounds. I wonder now what would have happened without the departmental Dutch courage, if I could have focused on the merriment in hand instead of mooning at your table reading into your mad hand gestures and facial expressions as if I were at a mind performance, not in a pub garden. You are, naturally, the centre of attention, a habit I will come to realise, holding court and magnetising all eyes to you. To your left, a man with sandy hair and a tweed jacket hangs on your every word, laughing a little too loudly and a beat or so before the rest do. There is some distance between you though, and I write him off as another acolyte and thrall to your charms. It doesn't take long for the boys to cotton on that my mind and attentions are elsewhere, Piotr nudging me in the ribs and delivering the sort of crude remarks that make me thankful the last four years of his doctorate haven't entirely thinned out his Polish accent. It is Jack, our lab techno technician, a man who dedicates 40 hours a week to breeding newts, who makes the only sensible remark of the night. What have you got to lose, eh, Frank, he says. Another night in a cold single bed? 
That's so nice to be resubmerged into it. Thank you. It um, it feels a little bit that way too when you've been kind of working on something else and then you come back to yes. the and you're like, whoa, I, I kind of vividly actually remember kind of writing that scene and a few other scenes. Um, so yeah, really nice. That. Meeting old friends. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's exactly it. So as a final statement, just before we wrap this up, could you tell me what you would hope readers will take from The Silent Treatment? That's a brilliant question. Um, I hope that The Silent Treatment will encourage people to think about those they love the most, um, how they communicate with them and how they show them um, just what they mean to them, um, which I think is really important, I suppose, now more than ever. Um, and of course, I really hope that readers um, will enjoy it too. It should be very entertaining, um, very uplifting and hopefully a bit different too. Well, huge congratulations from me on a wonderful novel that is out this Thursday in paperback. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Um, look out for it in its kind of cream paperback cover. <laughs> I hope everybody picks it up and I'm sure anybody that does will take as much from it as I do. Oh, thank you so much. It's been lovely to speak to you, Michelle. Thank you. And lovely to speak to you too. Thanks so much for joining oh, us. Take care. Thank you.